And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Harmony. I'm Maggie. And we are Rebel Girls Book Club, and today we are reading The Kiss Quotient by... Helen Huang. I don't have the ability to remember author names, and I apologize because I respect you all as authors. Yes, so... Maggie, what is what was your what was your perception of this book? Was this your first time reading it or had you read it before? I didn't reread it for this episode. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I first heard about this book, I think, when it first came out because it was really big in book reviewer spaces for a while. Uh, and then last year, I think I really hit my stride in romance and was listening to a lot of romance audiobooks and was like, you know what, I think I really want to listen to The Kiss Quotient. And I liked it, but had some problems with it and then decided to continue with the series. And I think that for me, The Kiss Quotient is a really great introduction to this world. But something that I really respect about Helen Huang that I just want to like throw out there is that she, to me, it feels like took all of the criticism about this first book and made the second and third books in the series progressively better. And you can really see her growth as an author throughout the trilogy. The Kiss Quotient is a really fun, wonderful, lovely time, but there's some weird power dynamics that happen in it that are hard to navigate. And there's just a lot to pick apart. So on the surface, I think it's a really fun, sexy time. And then you dig a little bit deeper into it. And it's like, oh boy, there's some interesting things happening here to talk about, which I think will make this a good podcast episode. But I think for me, my experience is that I have a positive relationship with the trilogy as a whole. The Heart Principle, the third book is especially wonderful. But this first book is definitely the weakest of the bunch for me. Okay, wonderful. Yes, I only knew about this book via Maggie. And to give listeners a plot summary, this book is about an autistic woman who hires a male escort to teach her how to have better sex. So that is the plot we're working with there to give you an idea of some of the power dynamics that we'll talk about later. And I guess just to kind of echo your th- what you were saying, I had, I had a rough time with this book until halfway through because that's when the power dynamics are addressed a lot more directly by the characters themselves. And this is a very sexy book, very sexy even for romance novels, but it was hard for me because... There's these weird power dynamics that were not being fully processed or addressed for most of it. And they were playing with, it could have been kinky, but it wasn't fully leaning into some of these problematic, you know, the kinks that are kind of problematic and fun, right? Because we all enjoy fantasies. And then there were also these weird power dynamics. So I don't know. I was having a hard time with the sexiness aspect of this book because I was like, what is going on here? It feels like we're playing a little bit almost with non-consent power dynamics, but this is not explicit enough for it to actually turn into a kinky thing or to be fetishized, I guess, in a way that feels healthy and right. We're just kind of on the border here 
but then I feel like the book did address it throughout the novel. So I'm excited now to read the other books. I think that one of the really beautiful things about this book, before we get into some of the power dynamics that make it an interesting read, shall we say, because I felt very similarly. That first half, I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then the second half, they have a very pivotal conversation. And it was like, okay, I feel a lot better about all of this now. But I will say that I think that one of the beautiful things about this book is that the way it came about is that Helen Huang wrote this first summary in 10 weeks. She rewrote it a couple of times. And she, I guess the whole thing for her was that she wanted to do sort of a gender bent pretty woman, but she was having trouble trying to figure out why the main character would be in a position to hire a male escort to begin with. And then in Helen Huang's personal life, she found out that her preschool aged daughter had autism, which led her on a whole self-discovery journey where she discovered that she also has autism. So one of the really wonderful things about this book, I think, is the way that, not that it's a self-insert by the author necessarily, but you can kind of see her writing through this whole process of self-discovery. And Stella's relationship to her autism is, I think, really nuanced and so well done. And I bring that up because I think that that is one of the things that sort of impacts some of these power dynamics, because I think in Stella's brain as the main character, she thinks she's being really explicit and really clear about everything that's happening. And there's this big miscommunication that happens part of the way through where Michael found, finds out from not Stella that Stella has autism. So they both end up working with information about the other person that that, that the other person doesn't know that they have, and it really influences the way that they think about and talk about each other and interact with each other. So I wanted to kind of put that in the forefront, because I think that that's one of the best and most wonderful things about this book is this really nuanced portrayal of what it's like to live with autism and also live with later in life diagnosed autism. But it does, I think, really influence the power dynamics that are happening here. Because on the surface of it, it gets really complicated because the first flag is the fact that Stella hires a sex worker to teach her more about sex based on a really off-putting and terrible comment that a co-worker made to her about needing to be better at sex. And then she sort of, she has this whole plan for how this interaction is going to go, but it really pushes Michael Michael's professional boundaries of what is and isn't okay for him personally as a sex worker. And so that was, there's so much that ends up happening, but I guess as an entry point, what was your sort of thought about kind of some of those conversations? Because I saw where every character was coming from, but that was one thing that made me kind of uncomfortable. The sex worker aspect, the conversations where Stella... Okay, okay, rephrase the question. What made me uncomfortable was the fact that Michael had very clear boundaries for himself in his profession about what was and wasn't okay. And Stella, I think on the surface of it, respected those boundaries because when he said that he didn't want to, she was like, oh, okay, I'll just go find somebody else, which I think in, in some cases is a very reasonable response. But because of the dynamics that had sort of already been established between the two of them, he almost took that as a challenge. It was a personal affront because he was attracted to her on more than a professional level. And I think that for me, the whole way that they came to this initial agreement where he's going to teach her about sex, I think coercive is maybe too strong of a word, but it, it felt weird because it so clearly went against his personal boundaries as a sex worker. So it's not the fact that he was a sex worker that was a problem for me. It was the way in which their whole dynamic seemed to disrespect his boundaries about his profession. 
Yeah, I don't even know how to begin unpacking that. And so I'm going to rely really heavily on the syllabus questions for this episode to help me. Because that, yes, there are instances that because Michael is hired and is a sex worker in which Stella is stepping on his boundaries and he's kind of willingly giving away some of his boundaries. And so there are sort of weird consent issues there going on. And then the other thing that I think struck really... The other thing that really complicated this romance for me in the beginning where I was like, I don't know if I can get a get into this is that Stella does not actually like sex in the beginning and Michael teaches her to like sex and because she does not like sex, what she what she is expecting and what she has hired him for is to teach her how to do things despite the fact that she does not like it. So there is a whole weird little I don't even know. I don't even know. So I'm going to go to the syllabus questions and hopefully we can unpack this together. Okay. So how much agencies do do our main characters have? Our main characters here are Stella, who is a, a, a com, econometricist. She does something in economics and she's got a PhD in it and she's really smart. Also autistic, has had a couple of sexual experiences before Michael they were not good. These men, it sounds borderline rapey. It, it just, it just does. And that's uncomfortable. So that, that, that is the thing. She doesn't know how to interact with people while she's had sexual experiences, but the men very much disregarded her comfort during the experiences. And she thought that she just had to put up with that in order to get these experiences out of the way. And we have Michael who is a prostitute as a, I mean, is an escort, I will say, because that's a little bit more high class, I guess. He he goes on dates before sleeping with people. And um, all sex work is good. We support sex work on this podcast. But yeah, so he's doing that to get back at his father. He's got a lot of daddy issues going on. He thinks he's an inherently bad person because he's his father's son. And his father is a shit human. So... How much agency do each of these characters have, I guess? In the beginning, it seems as though Stella has more agency because she is hiring someone to help complete a service. And that is fine, right? She's got agency. She's got a lot of money. I guess where the agency is taken away is that she is a neurodivergent person in a very neurotypical world. And so... Her, while she maintains agency, while she maintains consent in a lot of these situations, she is continually forced into places in which she is uncomfortable, places that are not built for her, and being told that she has to change to navigate it. Michael, on the other hand, does not have a lot of money, has, feels as though he has to support his family, which... We find out later maybe he doesn't have to support them as much as he's been supporting them, but he feels as though he has to support his family, so he's got this familial expectation. He doesn't have a lot of money. But I I think he kind of has agency by the way that he's chosen to work. He has chosen to stay with his family, to deal with those familial expectations, and he has chosen to become a prostitute in part because of revenge, which I guess could kind of you could kind of argue is maybe something that's taking away from his agency, right? Because he's doing this choice not because it's something he necessarily wants to do, but because it's something that he feels like, I don't know, I don't know, feels subversive in this world in which he's been marginalized in some way. 
So I don't know, Maggie, what do you think about characters' agency within this scenario? I think that as usual, it's really hard to draw the lines between agency and power and the way that those things interact with each other. Because I think that on the one hand, you're right that every character in this novel is making the choice that they want to. The place where that gets complicated is that the way that Michael chooses to push Stella plays with some of that non or dub con and it's not super explicit until a place in the middle of the book where they actually talk about that boundary pushing and whether that's okay and whether it's working for Stella etc. So that I think puts Stella in a place of less agency for me at the beginning of the book that felt really uncomfortable and difficult to deal with. I think that the two competing power dynamics here are, as you mentioned, class dynamics largely, and being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world, where Michael is functioning in the world as sort of being default, as being neurotypical. And I don't mean that to say that like being neurodivergent is not normal or good, but to echo what Harmony is saying, that the world is built for neurotypical people as the default. It's structured that way. So he's having a much easier time navigating social situations in the world, navigating all different kinds of power dynamics in the world than Stella is. Stella, though, has significantly more class privilege, both from her upbringing, from her relationship with her parents, to her current job where she makes boatloads and boatloads of money. And she doesn't care about that money but she also is influenced in it in the way that one of the tensions between the two of them, especially after this kind of dynamic goes less from, you know, client and employer to relationship is the fact that Stella just kind of throws money at everything and anything because she's got it and she doesn't see a reason not to spend it. And Michael doesn't always take kindly to that, you know? So there's this deep sense of misunderstanding between the two of them. And then on top of that, I think that both of their agency is compromised by the sort of miscommunication trope that they have in this novel, where Stella finds out about Michael's mother's cancer and about his background more without Michael knowing that she knows these things. And it like, and it's like, it's an accident. It happens. That happens in life sometimes. And then Michael finds out that Stella is autistic because his cousin Quan has a brother who's autistic and he sees the comparisons and isn't diagnosing her necessarily, but is very much like, I'm pretty sure that she's like my brother. So they both have this information about each other and then they make decisions that affects the other person without them knowing that they know these things about each other, right? And I think for me, that's the other place where agency in this novel is really like stripped in terms of the actions of the characters, even outside of societal power dynamics, where they start making decisions for and behalf and on the behalf of the other person based on information that isn't necessarily confirmed that they haven't heard from that person. And so I think for me, those are sort of the two very sticky places with agency is that weird dubcon aspect in the middle and that miscommunication at the end that changes the way that they see the other person without ever talking to them about it made more complicated by the class dynamics and the fact that this is a book that deals heavily with being neurodivergent in a world where the default is seen as being neurotypical. I agree. It's a very it's a very hard book to unpack. <laughs> um, but it's good that we're doing this together because I, it needs to be unpacked. 
I want to explore a little bit agency in terms of bodily agency and Michael's experience as a sex worker. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about bodily agency in terms of the non-consent aspects or, I don't know, maybe we can just explore consent in general through this lens. But yeah, so Michael is a male sex worker, which because we live in a very patriarchal world, is different than being a, a female sex worker, but also means that his agency tends to be limited because his clients see him as a person performing a service and just see him for that service, which is his body. And he's got a lot of feelings about that. And so I guess I'm hoping you can help me unpack whether this limits his agency, I guess, and whether... Whether the idea of being just our bodies, of of selling our bodily labor, has a different effect on our agency than other labor systems, perhaps. I think that in terms of Michael and in terms of the character in the novel, what I really got from it is that for Michael, the lack of agency potentially in this and the conflict he has about all of this, I think is because... He comes to sex work from a place of self-hatred. He comes to sex work because, again, as Harmony mentioned, it's sort of as revenge against his father. But his father has left him with a complex thinking that he should never deserve anything better. He feels like what he has to offer the world is the fact that he's beautiful. So I think that for himself, it's like a it's the fact that his motivations are coming from this deep place of self-hatred that makes his experience, or at least is a large part of what makes his experience with this work so complicated. Because I think that the question for me is, if he had a different relationship in terms of not thinking that he is responsible for the sins of his father, would he have still chosen this path? And I don't know that the answer to that is yes. And so I think that that's the place where the book gets complicated. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing on the book to portray the fact that our own internal worlds and the conflicts that we have within ourselves can sometimes make us make choices that we wouldn't have otherwise and then have to live out the consequences of those choices. But it is complicated because it does make you think about, I don't know, even consent within the self and why are we making the decisions that we are making and how much agency do we have in terms of making our own decisions, because this is a decision that he makes over and over and over again. But because it's coming from a place of self-hatred, it's hard to almost view it as a wholehearted decision that he's making because he wants to be making it. So much as in his head, he's backed himself into into this corner of the fact that it's his only choice or one of his only choices. And then you add on top of that, the fact that he feels this financial pressure because his mother is sick and that he feels like he can't and doesn't deserve to live his actual dreams of being a fashion designer and it's like oh man this poor man has ended up in a place that he doesn't necessarily hate being in but he has very complicated feelings about and it's hard to read but again I don't think it's necessarily bad that we explore all of this in this book you know I do I do so I think what you're saying to me is that The fact that he's doing sex labor doesn't necessarily affect the agency. It's the way he feels specifically about sex labor and how that, how how perhaps perhaps how he feels his father would feel about it. And for further context for people, Michael's father also 
made labor by being beautiful or made his money by being beautiful and charming and charming woman out of money and creating a pyramid scheme. So for Michael, this feels very similar. And, and like Maggie said again, like his only path, because this is the path that his father showed him to a certain extent. I guess for me, there feels like there could be a connection between... And I don't know if this is just because these are the two things that stand out as making me the most uncomfortable. But there seems like there could be a connection between Michael and his, and the way consent works in terms of sex work. Because, yes, he he says he enjoys sleeping with women. He doesn't feel the best about this decision. He feels like it is something being forced upon him because he needs to make money fast. And, and Stella, who does not ever call her past sexual experiences rape, but in this book, in addition to the, the fact that she has asked Michael to push her boundaries, in addition to that, she experiences assault from one of her co-workers who forcibly kisses her. And I guess her as somebody who does not does not want sex, even though does not think she wants sex or does not think she likes it, and continuing to be in those situations and experience that bodily, even though, I, I don't know, I don't know. I guess I'm like, the fact that they are both putting their themselves in positions that they're not fully comfortable with in regards to sex feels meaningful to me in this book. And I'm just trying to grapple with what the connection is there. Well, I think to me, one of the big connections and how Michael and Stella view their lives similarly, even though they're coming at it from different angles, is that I think that they both very much view their bodies as objects. For Michael, his body is an object to sell and it's a way to make money and it's something that he is a complicated relationship. And I think that for Stella, in some ways, her body is an object that she needs to make submit. And that it needs to do the things that she thinks it should be doing. And figuring out if those things can ever be enjoyable. Because it's for her, it's also not just her relationship with sex. But this book also talks about being overstimulated in general. And feeling like your body is just kind of locking up and just so much dislikes the situation. It's in that you just kind of shut down, even in situations that aren't sexual, right? She's at this nightclub, she gets overstimulated. Very understandable. Michael's confused because he doesn't know that she's autistic and she and she has an autistic meltdown at the nightclub, basically, which from the reader's perspective, because you get what's happening is heartbreaking, but he's just confused and distressed by what's happening because she goes from his perspective being okay to not okay very quickly with no context. So I think that for me, that's the connection is that both of these people are trying to find paths in which their bodies are more than objects. The way that they view their bodies as being objects is different. But I think in that sense, they have a very similar relationship to how they treat sex and how they treat sexuality. And that's the place where they're able to come together and really find enjoyable experience together, being in their body, having it not be transactional, having it not be something that they both feel like they have to be doing. But the journey to getting to that point goes through all of these pitfalls that Harmony and I have started talking about, you know? But I think that ultimately, that's what that connection is to me at the very least. And I think that when you frame the journey that way and see where they get to in the end, it can be a little bit easier to swallow and see what's going on. But that is what I sort of see happening. Snaps. Many snaps. I think to 
before we move away from this question and move on to the next one, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that Stella is also hiring Michael, not necessarily because of her own wants, but because she wants to please her mother and her mother wants grandbabies. And we never get in this book whether Stella herself wants grandbabies, which I think further complicates all of our character motivations and the concept of consent. I don't know. You Feel free to dig into that if you'd like. I don't know how else to do it. <laughs> no, it's so true. There's two really driving forces that push Stella into this. And the first is, I think, a general societal push to feel like one is walking the walk of navigating and understanding romantic and sexual relationships, which is embodied at the beginning by this comment that Philip, her coworker, makes about the fact that she just needs to practice and get better, which is skeevy to begin with. But then Philip is also the person who assaults her at the end that Michael stops that assault because he happens to be witness to it. So really messed up layers of connections there. And to be clear as well, the book doesn't condone any of that, but that is what pushes Ste- one of the things that pushes Stella to this. And then on top of that, there's this fact that she has a good relationship with her mother, generally speaking, but her mother doesn't really get her, so to speak, heavy air quotes. And one of the ways that we see that happen is this push for grandbabies. And I think is a narrative that we're seeing be unpacked more and more as more and more people are open about the fact that they're neurodivergent and are, I think, unmasking with their friends and their families, which is that there's the sense that neurotypical people just want the best for you. But in their heads, the best is very much following this prescribed journey in life and living a quote unquote, again, normal life and having the marriage and having those romantic and social connections and having grandbabies. So I think that this book is starting to kind of dig into all of that a little bit and is maybe one of those slightly earlier conversations in novels because you have to remember not that this book came out ages and ages ago but it has been a minute. (laughs) I think that this was a 2017 or 2018 release. Part of the reason it was so big was because this was one of the very first novels that ever had kind of an openly neurodivergent and openly autistic character as the lead in a romance novel. So I think that we're starting to see some of that very probably commonly experienced, well-meaning, neurotypical person who's just forcing their own thoughts and expectations and a neurodivergent person to come into play. But it's hard because the book doesn't, the book addresses some of these tensions between Stella and her mom, but not all of them, which I think on one hand is true to real life in that we're all constantly working on our our relationships with our parents. And it's not like one conversation fixes everything. But from a reader's perspective, I think that I really wanted to see that part specifically more fully addressed. But it's partially because it would have tied the book up in a neater little bow. And I don't know that authors necessarily owe me that. So that's kind of where I come to that whole dynamic. Yeah, I agree completely. This book felt very realistic to me. It just wasn't always enjoyable to read because there's just so many things going on, but that doesn't mean that these experiences are not valid or that this experience couldn't exist in the real world and that that doesn't mean that a beautiful relationship can't form from it. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. So our next question here is how are how our main characters gain agency? Do they do it by exhorting power or force over others? And I think that that's complicated. So Stella in this relationship gains agency simply through payment, which should be an even transaction and exchange. And I think we see throughout the relationship 
her yielding some of her power throughout not in a bad way but that that is how she started this relationship giving agency as being the client and she periodically yields that to better to better in part because for her she starts developing real feelings and then also because she just respects Michael and doesn't want him to just think of her as his client and does not want to put him in uncomfortable situations. Michael... (sighs) Michael feels as though he has no agency throughout the majority of this book, up until the very end when he gains agency because Stella tricked him into it. (laughs) She sneakily gave him money. And then he realizes that he's been silly all along and he's always had more agency than he thought. But Michael, for me, was a tough character because he is also a man living in this world and therefore subject to some toxic masculinity, I think. And I don't think that makes him a bad person, but he deals a lot with jealousy and he tries to maintain his agency by really keeping up this rigid client client versus servicer relationship with Stella, but also because he doesn't want that, completely disregards these initial boundaries. So his attempts to gain agency throughout most of this book are him trying to reinstate these boundaries, but doing it in a really confusing way because he keeps also disregarding them. It's not necessarily Stella doing most of the disregarding, I mean, sometimes Stella does overstep boundaries, but I think it has more to do with her autism. And we can see because we get her perspective that she is also trying to be really careful about respecting Michael's boundaries. Whereas Michael, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know. I don't think he necessarily exerts power or force over others, but I think that he feels... A desire to be in power but also feels powerless and it probably is like a very typical male experience because we live in an awful world that tells men that they must be super powerful right and he has purposely put himself in a situation that kind of subverts that power so I don't know Maggie what do you make of that <laughs> yeah I don't know I think I think you're right in that it's complicated I think that it kind of, to me, comes back in the ways that power dynamics play roles in this book. So I think that Stella inadvertently ends up exercising her class power, her financial power over Michael, and she comes to it from a very well-meaning place, right? She just wants to help him. She feels like she really needs to set him free because things have gotten complicated, but she doesn't want to do that while also leaving him in the lurch. And she's and she's had her eyes open to this need in the world. She's got all of this fucking money that she doesn't need. So she sets up this foundation She knows that Michael's mom is going to be one of the recipients, but it's not like she's the only recipient. So we've got this very complicated thing happening there where she is, I think, exerting power over him. But it also in many ways isn't, it it feels weird because it's exerting power over him, but it's also setting him free, both in terms of the sense of she is like, it's like it's a symbolic way that she is setting him free from their relationship and their dynamic in some ways. But it's also, as Harmony was saying, symbolic for Michael, because I think that it gives him so much more freedom to explore the ways that he does have other kinds of power in this work, because it takes so much of the burden of his class disadvantages off of him, that he has this sort of coming to of being like, oh, yeah, I've been an attractive dude this whole time. Like, maybe I did have different power that I didn't see. And 
it, which is it, which was very interesting to read, but is genuinely very complicated. And I think that as Harmony and I have talked about before, you know, there's so many different kinds of powers exerting pressure on us in the world. And financial power and the power of capitalism is so real and so fucking oppressive, you know, and Michael is so much the embodiment of that, especially in the context of the way that the healthcare system is failing us in the United States. He is though, I think he does though exert power over Stella in other ways, because there is a level of which he very much acts in terms of I know what's best for you, even without having all of the facts, which is extra complicated because there is certain parts of that that Stella has asked him to do. And then there's certain parts of that that Stella has not necessarily asked him to do. And that, again, doesn't get really resolved until the middle of the book. That's sort of a weird dynamic. And then there's also, I think, very much a savior complex between Michael and Stella that Michael just wants to protect and shelter Stella that I think is hard. And it comes out in good ways and bad ways. On the one hand, it's really good that he stopped the assault of Stella. But on the other hand, it comes from this very possessive and protective place of how dare you touch my woman, which is, is weird. And so I think that like they do both exert power over each other. But I think for me, the thing that's so frustrating, but also realistic about it is that so many of the ways that they end up exerting power over each other is because they're not communicating with each other. And the parts of that book that I think are really fruitful in terms of that conversation are the parts where they both feel like they're communicating clearly and the other person is not receiving the message in the same way that's intended. Because I think that like that's such a part of Stella's character is feeling like she is respecting these boundaries and she's communicating exactly what she wants. And Michael is just not getting the fucking memo, you know? And I think that that's a really fruitful conversation to have. But the part where it feels weird, as well as being realistic, is the part where, again, they both have this secret information about each other that they then use for, like, good and evil <laughs> in some ways, you know? And I think that in some ways you hit the nail on the head with this book, which is that I think often I go into romance thinking that it's not going to be super realistic and it's not always going to be super reflective of the way the world works, even if it is dealing with heavier topics. And I think that this book deals really heavily with just flawed main characters and the ways in which they're trying to navigate the a very flawed world with each other. And that doesn't make it a bad book or anything, but it does make it more complicated to unpack than other romances that I think that I have read personally and that you and I have unpacked on the podcast. Yeah, this one's a hard one for us, you guys. <laughs> if you can't tell, it's very hard for me. Uh, maybe, maybe in years' time, we'll have a follow-up in which I can better articulate my feelings. <laughs> once I am wiser. But to talk a little bit about this miscommunication, I want to talk more about Michael's discovery of Stella's autism and then how he chooses to act with that information because he doesn't confront her about it, which I guess is fair. I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's rude. I don't know. So he does not confront her about the autism, but then decides that because she's autistic, he can go ahead and have a fake relationship with her because it will be helpful to her. And that comes across as very condescending. And Stella later, when she finds out pitying to her, it comes across as him pitying her. And he, I, I don't know, the motivations here are very weird and that does feel like a weird power dynamic, especially because 
we know that people treat people with disabilities differently, right? Not that autism always has to act as a disability, it just means that you're neurodivergent, but people people with autism will experience things like when they're dating people and when they're dating a neurotypical people, people will treat you differently once they find out that you have autism, right? And there's the questions of consent that go with that because there are various ways in which our brains work and people with autism often get infantilized and people might question their ability to consent. And we know we know from this book, especially because we're getting Stella's perspective, that she very much can consent to things. But that is also complicated by the fact that her consent, especially in the beginning, feels feels weird because she does not like sex. So oh, I don't know. What do you think about the power dynamic? Is Michael enforcing a power dynamic when he discovers that she has autism and changes his behavior or his wants accordingly to that, I guess, is my question. I mean, I think the answer to that is yes, but I think that it's yes because that was the point. I think that that whole section of the novel was was like meant to be a call out to exactly what you're saying of the fact that neurotypical people do treat neurodivergent people differently after they find out that they're neurodivergent. They change their expectations of them in their head. They change, you know, like the the whole thing shifts. Like, I think that the answer to your question is yes, but it was intentional and purposeful to call out this dynamic that often does happen. And it, I don't think it was supposed to make Michael look good or be a stronger romance lead. I think that it's just another one of those ways in which Helen Huang was potentially, I don't even know, writing from her own experience to be like, yeah, this is just what happens often. And that sucks. But sometimes you also got to write the shitty parts in a romance novel. You know, I don't think that Michael's intended to be a perfect lead. And I think that this is one of those places where we really see him lean back into almost a knee jerk response to all of this. Because he's also he also uses it as an excuse in many ways to actually go after what he wants, you know, which is Stella. So I think that that's my answer to your question. But I, I, I just think that it was intentional. I think it was shitty. And it was supposed to be intentionally shitty. I think it's just, I, I have so many feelings about Michael, and I think it's because I don't read that many MW, uh, yeah, MW romances, man-woman romances anymore, and because we see Michael gr- grapple so clearly with these patriarchal issues and with his identity related to it, it feels hard for me, especially because we see Stella go through so much growth throughout the novel, and I feel like even though she doesn't start off as the perfect romantic lead, she ends kind of being, like, the perfect romantic lead. And I don't know that Michael does, which hurts me because he's he is a lovable character and he's a good guy and he deserves that. But I don't know. I guess it's, it's, it's very hard for men in this world. We don't talk about it enough. Yeah, you know, I think in some ways for me, my enjoyment of this book, as weird as this is going to sound, but, like, this is just how my brain works, is, like, I had to really let go of the idea that this book was a romance novel first. And I think kind of back into the idea that it was more of a contemporary novel that had a love story at the center of it. Because I think that this book really pushes it back against some conventions that one might expect to find in a typical contemporary romance novel. But I think that, I don't know, I just feel like all of these conversations are very valid and need to be had. And they're really uncomfortable and tough to deal with. And I think that that becomes especially true when you're expecting a capital R romance novel, 
but it's just too realistic, I think, to actually feel like that in a lot of ways, at least for me. Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's move on. I don't think we're going to be able to talk about all these. I just don't even think I'm prepared enough. We'll have to revisit this book in the future, too. But this is your this is your introduction to it, listeners, that where we start to have these conversations, but don't fully unpack them because we lack the knowledge and the words. Okay. So does the plot resolve via asserting hierarchy or subverting it? I don't know even how that question deals. Okay, I think... I I think I can't apply this question to this book. I think part of my issue is that we live in a patriarchal world. And this book reminds me of how inherently uneven male-woman relationships can be. Even though Stella and Michael have a fairly good relationship, right? Even though they have a loving relationship, the fact that Michael is still so embedded in this patriarchy, even though he isn't, like, the most patriarchal guy out there, really makes it feel uneven to me, especially because romance is supposed to be about fantasy. And so I guess this this book doesn't necessarily subvert or reinstate the hierarchy, but it does showcase, I think, the ways in which male-woman relationships can be hierarchical, because of all of these contextual things and the real very hard work a lot of men have to do in order to just be emotionally healthy in this world. I don't know. What do you think, Maggie? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that this story is very much about two people who get together in a very unconventional way, shall we say, trying to figure out and navigate how to have an actual relationship that is on more equal footing because their initial coming together starts very explicitly with some huge differences in power and power dynamics. And the journey of the novel is really trying to figure out how to make those power dynamics between these two people more equal by the end. And I think that the place where maybe as a reader, you want it to feel like it's completely equal at the end, but it doesn't necessarily. And I think that that's just kind of how real life works, you know? And I think also in some ways to maybe look at it from a more hopeful perspective also reminds us that this is all lifelong work that you can't have a totally picture perfect, healthy relationship at the end because their work with each other and their work to subvert power dynamics and subvert hierarchy and their relationship is going to happen their entire lives. You know, they end up engaged. And I think that a lot of the work that happens is them both understanding each other more and Michael understanding with more context and better listening how and why Stella has her boundaries and how they work and how they play out in her life and being able to more wholeheartedly accept them and not kind of make decisions on her behalf without all of the context, you know? Yes, snaps to that. The making decisions on her behalf, I think, is the big thing for me. Because Michael does treat Stella, in part because he serves as the servicer role, but it comes from a weird sort of perspective, like Maggie talked about earlier, this wanting to protect her sort of thing, and this belief that he only can service women, right, in this way, as a sort of masking technique. (sighs) I don't know where I was going with that, but... (laughs) I think that I think Stella feels pretty good in the relationship and like it's equal because he does accommodate her, to her quite a bit. But the problems come in the fact that Michael 
until the very end. Stella also has a, has a big breakthrough where she learns to love herself and is, I'm neurodivergent and that's okay. <laughs> and Michael has the same coming to where he's like, I can't, don't have to be trapped in these things. All of these expectations don't necessarily have to trap me. Which I think is the start of him grappling with that patriarchy, with the self-work that he needs to do. But I think that for me, as I've already talked about ad nauseum, Stella just feels more developed at the end because she seems further along at that journey. And Michael has just started doing that. And we see the beginnings of that when he accepts Stella's money. When he's like, yes, you can buy me a car if you want. Because he's expect he's he's accepting that she is powerful and that he does not always need to be the provider or the protector. And that that doesn't make him less of a man. So I guess that's where we come out with it. In terms of, it starts off in a kind of subversive scenario, but because we lived in a fucked up world, it still feels not all that subversive. It still sort of reinforces the hierarchies that already exist in the world simply because these people, simply because we're dealing with an autistic woman and a cis neurotypical man, but also we're seeing all of the ways in which those positions affect them and... I think that Stella ends up a little bit more enlightened than Michael by the end, but there is hope for Michael. Yes, that is how I feel. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much. We also, and I don't even think that we have time or necessarily should get into these conversations, but there's also, I think, a conversation that can be had about the fact that Michael as a sex worker develops feelings for a client to begin with and how that makes him act. And that's a strange dynamic. Or even the fact that, Stella sets up a foundation where she pours millions and millions of dollars into it to help his mom. It's heartwarming, but it's only okay because Michael ends up taking it okay in the end. That's weird. (laughs) That's a weird thing to do. I agree. So there's, yeah, there's just so much in it. And I think that to a certain extent, that's where the romance suspension of disbelief comes in a little bit, but it's so realistic in other ways that I think it was hard for me as a reader to suspend disbelief about some things and then be so grounded in real world dynamics in others. I do want to reemphasize the fact that I really enjoyed this novel. And I think especially the series as a whole is worth reading, but it's going to make you think about and grapple with things. And in some ways, I think that's the point of reading. So that's interesting and good. And also, again, I do want to emphasize the fact that in the next two books, Helen Huang really, we're not the first people to have this conversation about this book, right? Helen Huang really took this to heart and addressed a lot of this in her next two novels. And I think that that's always really wonderful to see as an author who puts out a work and then takes feedback and thinks even more critically about their work and really grows in the series. That was really lovely to read as somebody who's read all three books, you know? I love that. I do love when an author grows. When I'm like, ah, yes, I see that you too were subject to the problematic ideas of society. And then you took that and you grew with it. And I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud you're not J.K. Rowling. (laughs) I love that you grow. Okay. Maggie, what are you going to bring into this book, into the real world with you? What can we take from this book? I'm going to start, actually. I'm going to take the idea of context. This book relies so heavily on context to the point where I couldn't even eloquently 
talk about my problems with it. And I also just want to put out a call out there to listeners that if you were ever going to email us about something, please email us about this book because I would love more language and ideas in order to grapple with this. I want to grapple with it with you. And I think it is a good book and worth talking about. And the only way that I can fully understand it and fully appreciate it is the more conversation that we do have about it. So anyway, I'm taking into this book back again, the idea, the the need for reflection, the need for context, the ways in which the world is messy and needing to move forward and enjoy love despite that, but also needing to reflect and learn and grow constantly. And I think that our main characters do sort of exemplify that despite all their problems. They are growing They are dealing with context. They're doing the best with the information that they have or they think they have. And they make different choices at the end. So, Yeah, I don't know. What am I taking from this book? I think I'm taking this from this book similarly. The understanding of trying to break down in my head more explicitly. I don't know. Trying to parse out what I as a human being actually think versus what society has conditioned me to think not just about other people, but also about myself and the decisions that I'm making. I think that, and I think that you and I sometimes fall into this trap. (laughs) It's really easy to break down the world and break down people into a series of power dynamics and marginalizations and who has what and who doesn't have what. But at the end of the day, you and your personality are more than that. And your, and your decisions are influenced by more than that. And this book, I think is very much a book about characters and they're they're fully formed, fully fledged people who are making decisions that aren't the best for them, which is something that we all do for weird reasons, which ultimately is also something that we all do. But especially for Michael, I think that if he had thought a little bit more about the context of the world and why he was feeling some of those things and went to fucking therapy before the novel started, he might have led himself to make different and better decisions. But at the same time, again, that's really easy to say from the outside. You know, that's really easy to say being not in his head, being not in his melodrama. So I think that that's ultimately what I'm taking from this book is being gentle with myself about the fact that I am working and living in a fucked up society, but also I am more than and bigger than and influenced by more than just the fact that I live in this fucked up society. And sometimes you're just not going to make the best decisions for yourself. That that's just part of being human. You know, you've just got to learn to live and grapple with that. And I think the nice thing is that at the end, these people are probably still going to make mistakes and make decisions that aren't the best for themselves, but they've learned so much about both of them that those mistakes are probably going to be less in the future and they have each other to lean on to navigate them. And I think that there is something that's really beautiful and hopeful about that in a romance novel. That's true. It is beautiful. Not the most enjoyable, but still beautiful. (laughs) And I'm rooting for them. Okay, wait, let me see if I've got any more questions. Oh, does this book, did we already talk about, does this book offer any prescriptions for operating in the larger world? I think it does. I think it offers a prescription to communicate and to consider people's context and also to come at solutions and problems, not from your own motivations. If you're going to help somebody, don't come about it like, I want to help and this is what I would like. You know, talk to that person and figure out what they most need. And yeah. So decenter yourself when trying to do help and do good in the world. Because if you don't, you're going to end up with lots of problems because we're all different and we all have different contexts. 
And I think to jump off of that, it's really easy for two non-autistic people, I think, or, you know, people who have different neurodivergencies than how Stella deals with her neurodivergency in the novel to be like, I think one of the prescriptions of this novel is to communicate. I think to get even more specific than that, it's to recognize the way in which you as an individual tend to communicate and do your best to then recognize the fact that not everybody is going to communicate in that same way. And therefore they're not gonna understand your boundaries and not understand your motivations and figuring out to the best of your ability, how you can either A, rephrase some of those things or B, be a better listener and be better at understanding other people's communication cues, understanding people's physical body cues that they're communicating to you, even if it isn't necessarily on a verbal level. I think that when we talk about communicate better, it's not necessarily just like sit down and have a heartfelt conversation in this novel. It's like, when possible, get out of your own head a little bit and think about other forms of communication and understand where your communication needs are and do your best in that context, if that makes sense. Snaps. That's all I got. That's all I got, Maggie. Do you have anything else you want to say to the people? I don't know. I think the only thing else that I want to say to this to the people is that I still think that this book is worth a read, but maybe adjust your expectations a little bit because I don't think that it reads like a typical capital R romance. And I think that if you go into it expecting that from it, you might come up with some more roadblocks than you do if you think about it more like this is a contemporary novel that's really about two people navigating the real world and their love story. And maybe that's just me, but I think that just calibrating expectations about this book is is important before you go into it if you happen to have gotten here and have not read it yet. Yeah, you saying that does automatically change the perspective of me. And I think I would have had an easier time enjoying this novel because I did enjoy it, but it took me halfway (laughs) until we got there where I was like, oh, this is enjoyable now. I think I would have enjoyed it more had I thought of it as a contemporary romance. My question for you is, are the other books in this series, are they more traditional romances or are they also contemporary novels in the same way? (laughs) I think they're still, to me, I think that they're still to me more contemporary novels. And I think that is especially true of the third book, which in my opinion is the best book in the series. That is a book about a woman who is navigating grief and masking and unmasking with her family and dealing with sick relatives. And it happens to have a really wonderful love story as part of it. I think that that's really where this series falls more than romance as we might think of it in other contexts. Good to know. Okay. Do we know what we're reading next week? I still don't have the book. I have not gotten an email about the book. Okay, so we don't know what we're reading last night. Next week, it's a surprise to you as well as us. Do we have any... Oh, what are you reading right now? Uh, what am I reading right now? One sec. I have, to, I have to look. I think it is called A Phoenix Must First Burn, which is a short story, an anthology compilation that was edited by Patrice Caldwell. It's really good. Is that YA? Yeah, it's YA sci-fi fantasy. It's really fun. Very cool. I have heard of that book. I am pulling up what I am reading right now. It's delightful. It is called... It is also YA, so this is where we're at, y'all. Not the Grimrose Girls. It is called... Harmony and I are deep in our YA era. I'm a YA librarian. I have many excuses now. (laughs) I have to read more YA than I've been reading. All Our Hidden Gifts by Caroline O'Donoghue, which is fantastic so far. It stars a little Irish girl who finds a tarot deck and a 90s Walkman. And 
a, I mean, I won't go into the whole plot because it, it's good if it remains a surprise. But, like, the magic in this story, because it is a witchy novel, because I am who I am. The magic in this story really starts off, at the beginning at least, as just being this girl using tarot or witchcraft as spicy psychology. And then we find out that maybe it has a little bit more umph. But seeing that and seeing the research and seeing the the confidence she gains from it felt very empowering for me. So that's my recommendation to you all. Well, that's fabulous. We will talk to you all next week then. Goodbye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebel girls book club on Facebook at rebel girls book one on Twitter and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.